Well, yesterday I was listening to a, a podcast with two unbelievers who were talking back and forth, and they were discussing the world's need for friends and how we really have failed in that regard. And the one gentleman, he used the term, he said that we are in the midst of an epidemic of loneliness. And just talking about and, and recognizing, realizing the fact that even though we have so much communication between us, we have telephones that didn't have just a number of years ago. We have the internet and social media and these different ways to connect with people all throughout the world. And yet we are undergoing, again, this epidemic of loneliness. We're more connected than ever, and yet we're simultaneously disconnected at the same time. And these two unbelievers, again, remind you, uh, their answer to this was, we need more AI. We need artificial intelligence to, to step in and bridge this gap um, so that we can have a computer teach us how to interact with each other, and we can learn and have this training so that we can become better friends in person. Uh, remember that there is a, a lot that we can learn from the world. The world is great at diagnosing problems, but not so great at, at treating problems. And so I want to go back to their diagnosis that we are more disconnected than ever. I can totally get on board with that. I can totally agree with that. I'm going to tell you right now, AI is not the answer, right? Uh, but we, we are much more shallow, I believe, in our relationships today than we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. Uh, we are more shallow in our, our friendships. We have farther reach. We have more friends, but less depth, more, more quantity and, and less quality of friendships, of relationships. Friendships have su suffered, for sure. We have not invested in our friendships like we should have been doing. And again, we're going to look at this morning this uh, the epitome of an example of friendship between David and Jonathan, these two great friends that we see in the Old Testament. And so, again, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel 18 if you're not already there. And as we consider not only the, the strength of their relationship, um, but as we consider the reason for the strength and the depth of this relationship that we see between David and Jonathan, I think the purpose for that, the reason for that, is the, the common bond that they have between them. That they have a, not just a, any kind of little common bond. They have a common bond in the Lord. They're both hardcore believers. They're both sold out for serving the Lord. And so let's go back a couple of verses, actually, into 1 Samuel 17. Look at the last two verses of 1 Samuel 17. It says, starting in verse 57, So when David returned from killing the Philistine, I'm talking about Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. And so... David walks up before Saul with severed hat, head in hand, right? And he has to remind Saul who he is. And he doesn't say, I am the, the one who killed this giant, this Goliath of a man. I'm the one who went out and I, I shut up this man who was mocking Israel for 40 days relentlessly. He says, no, I am the, the son of Jesse, just a lowly Bethlehemite. He answers in, in great humility. He's not building himself up. He's nobody special. He just says, I'm just the son of David or the son of Jesse from the house of Bethlehem. He's humble in his response. Now let's look at verse one of chapter 18. It says, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, 
that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And so after this brief conversation with Saul, Jonathan was, was drawn to him. He was attracted to, to David and, and this attitude that he had about him. Now, I'm sure that this conversation was much longer than the one verse that we have in 1758, just saying, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. But I imagine that it was the same attitude that was reflected in David's brief answer that Jonathan was attracted to, this sense of humility. He wasn't proud. He wasn't haughty. He wasn't arrogant. Even in the midst of his overwhelming strength and success and victory. Again, he's sitting there holding this head that's got to be the size of a grizzly bear. And he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm just this kid from Bethlehem. And I imagine that that is what Jonathan was attracted to, this, this man of strength, this man of power who was humble. He wasn't building himself up. He wasn't patting himself on the back. He was a, a servant of the Lord, and he was willing and ready to let everybody know that he was there to defend the name of the Lord. We saw last week that David didn't even consider himself worthy to be called the son-in-law of the king. This is the level and the degree of humility that David had. Even though he had already been anointed as the next king of Israel, he was hesitant even to marry into the family of the king because he had a proper understanding of the fact that the Lord is the Lord and he is in control. And David knew who the Lord was and he knew that he was not the Lord. Well, let's continue on in verse 2 of chapter 18. It says that Saul took him, that is David, that day and did not let him return to his father's house. And so Saul here, he even recognizes along with Jonathan that there's something special about David and he was unwilling to let him slip away. Now, at this point, we're unsure whether or not that was just because of some kind of admiration that he had. He realized that David had some gifts, that David uh, could bring a lot to the kingdom, that there was a lot that Saul and his, his kingdom could benefit from from David, or if maybe he was already recognizing David as a threat and wanting a little bit more control, wanting to keep his eyes on David, wanting to keep him around, because he realized that this man is a threat to my kingdom. This man is a threat to what I'm trying to build and establish in the kingdom of Israel. Either way, Saul recognized that there's something different and unique and special about David. Well, verse 3 of chapter 18 says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now this is the second time in just three verses that it says Jonathan loved him as himself. It said it back in verse 1 and here in verse 3 that Jonathan loved David. He didn't just love David like a, a buddy, like a friend. It says he loved him as himself. That's, a, again, a very unique bond, a very unique way to love, a very unique relationship between David and Jonathan. This isn't just a typical friendship. This is how uh, a husband is called to love his wife. Remember from Ephesians 5.28, husbands love your wives as your own body, as your own self, because no man loves anybody like he loves himself. That's our propensity, right? We are, uh, John Calvin said that the, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're constantly wanting to serve ourselves. We're having idols to, how can we make ourselves happy? How can we please ourselves? How can we lift ourselves up? But no, Jonathan loved David as himself. This is what we're all called to do, ultimately. This is the second commandment that Jesus gave in Mark 12. 
He said that the, the second commandment is just like the first. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a high calling. This isn't something that is easy to do. This isn't something we wake up and just automatically do, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Not just our, our family, not just our, our close kin, but our, our neighbors, those who we don't even know. We're called to love them as ourselves and Jonathan is an example of this, the fact that he loved David even as himself. Again, this is the, the ultimate example of friendship throughout all Scripture, this relationship that exists between David and Jonathan. And I, I have to uh, let you know, I hate that I have to, to let you know and just insert this, but this wasn't any kind of a, a homosexual love. A lot of liberal theologians will jump on this relationship and they'll make that kind of claim saying that, well, David and, and Jonathan, yeah, they had a lot more going on than just friendship. Um, there was no kind of sexual relationship at all between Jonathan and David. That's just a, a perversion of God's word. So just write that off. That is not a, an appropriate interpretation of this relationship. However, it was, again, absolutely unique that they, they had this bond, this relationship that was uh, closer than a friend, uh, closer than a brother, uh, a friend who loves closer than a brother. Um, we see that Jonathan didn't only appreciate David's humility, David's strength in the midst, humility in the midst of strength, but Jonathan even exemplified this himself. And I think David could reciprocate that same appreciation for who Jonathan was. If we go back a couple of chapters into chapter 13, we'll see an example of Jonathan's strength and humility and his trust in the Lord, his love for the Lord. In 1 Samuel 13, 6, it says, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and in thickets and cliffs and cellars. I wonder if I'm reading the right verse. Um, jumping down to verse 10, let's see here. As soon as he finished a burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went, no, nope, I'm looking for verse chapter 14. That's what I'm looking for. That means I probably put the wrong verses up there on the screen as well. All right, here we go. First Samuel 14, 6 said, then Jonathan came, no, J Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Again, he had a faith and a trust in the Lord. The Lord would bring them this victory. He's seeking to set out on with just his armor bearer, the two of them. Verse 10 says, but if they say, come up to us, so he's kind of testing out, should we go up and, and engage them or not? Then we will go up and the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be a sign to us. Again, his recognition that any victory that he might have is from the Lord, not from his own strength, not from his own might. Well, jumping down into verse 12 of 1 Samuel 14, it says, So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they put to death, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. 
that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow in the acre of land. And so again, Jonathan is just as hardcore as David. He's going up with just one other guy with him. They take out 20 men and all along he's saying that the Lord is the one who's given them into our hands. The Lord is the one who's doing this. And we're going up to do this for the, the name of the Lord, for the name of Israel. And so I have no doubt that Jonathan also, or David also had an appreciation and respect for Jonathan and his love and appreciation and trust for the Lord. They had a common bond that was in the Lord. And we have a special friendship and a, a, a camaraderie, kinship amongst other believers, don't we? We, of course, have friends who are outside of the faith, friends who are not uh, bound to us by the blood of Christ. However, that's a, a different kind of relationship, a different kind of uh, friendship with the world. We're told in James 4 that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. That doesn't mean that we can't be friends with the world, but we shouldn't be bound to them. We shouldn't have the same level and degree of friendship with the world that we do with other believers and brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Our bond goes beyond just simple interest, goes beyond having a, a shared sports team that we cheer for or a certain kind of brand of clothing that we like or appreciate. Our bond is in Christ, in the blood of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing and he says to the Corinthians, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean with those who are outside of the church. He was talking about those who are in the church. And he goes on to say, if I was talking about those who are outside of the church, and you would have to leave the world if you wanted to separate from those who are outside of the church. And so, yeah, we're supposed to have a, a close bond, close relationship with Christians. That doesn't mean that we don't associate with or, or have friendship with the world. We're called to reach the world, right? We're called to evangelize the lost. And we can't do that if we're separating completely from the lost. And so we need to uh, be, be careful not to separate from them completely, but our closest, most intimate relationship should be with those who are in Christ, with those who also call themselves Christians. Let's look together at 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15. And Paul says there that we are not to be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, with, with idols? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Again, as believers, our closest relationships are to be with other believers, not to the exclusion of unbelievers. And this is exactly what brought Jonathan and David so close together. They had this unique bond. They had this common bond in the Lord, but they both had a love for the Lord. Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18. <clears throat> I want to pick up in verses 4 and 5. 1 Samuel 18, verse 4 says that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including the sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and, and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. When I read this verse, verse 4, I think of uh, the, the jersey swaps that take place after sports events, right, after these games. And there have been a few times in this past year, especially where there's been 
uh, a particularly high-profile player who, by all accounts, is superior by any metrics or, or calculations to another player, and the other player will come up and offer a jersey swap. Hey, I'll, I'll give you my jersey if you give me yours. And the more high-profile player who has the the more valuable jersey has turned them down and said, no, I, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I think it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, and that's, what I, that's where my mind goes when I read this verse, that Jonathan was taking off all of his gear and giving it to David. But this is much more than just a, a jersey swap. This isn't just him saying, oh yeah, I, I find you uh, valuable. I find you worthy enough to, to wear my clothing. Uh, this is Jonathan taking off his royal garb. Remember that Jonathan is the son of the king. He is the prince. He is the, the heir to the throne. And in taking off his royal garb and placing it upon David, he's essentially giving away the, the kingdom for love's sake. Now, of course, we know that God is sovereign over all that, and David is going to be king regardless of Jonathan's attitude towards it. But Jonathan here is uh, complicit in David rising to the throne. He is on board with David coming up to the throne. He's saying, yes, this was supposed to be my place, my position, and I'm giving it over to you. He knew and fully understood that David was blessed of God. He knew the implications of that, that that meant David was going to rise up and, and take his quote-unquote rightful place on the throne, and he was fully okay with it. Uh, this was the, the custom of the day that the son would take the throne of the father, right? This is, we'll see this later on with Jonathan taking the throne from David and with Rehoboam taking the throne from Jonathan. Um, this is what was expected. And yet Jonathan was willing to, to lay that aside because he knew that David was blessed of God. He had the, the same attitude as we see a, another John in scripture have in the New Testament, John the Baptist. Remember, he had this attitude that uh, even though he had accumulated this great following, he had all these disciples who were coming after him. He had this ministry. Jesus himself said of John the Baptist that there's none like him, none born of women. And yet John the Baptist was still humble. He looked to Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, I'm unworthy to stoop down and to untie his sandal. He said that he, Jesus, must increase and John the Baptist must decrease. This was the, the humble attitude that John the Baptist had, the same kind of attitude that Jonathan has, that I need to step out of the way so God could do what he's going to do, even if it doesn't involve me. There's a, a lot of admirable humility going on with uh, Jonathan here in verses 4 and 5, taking off his clothing and placing it on uh, David. And following this encounter that we see between Jonathan and David, in the rest of chapter 18, we looked at this last week and how Saul goes out and kind of uses David as, as target practice. He takes his spear and seeks to throw it through David and thankfully misses. Uh, from there, he just grows in his jealousy even more. He sends David out on this suicide mission to go and slaughter 100 Philistines. And David, having the Lord with him, comes back with evidence of 200 Philistines that he went out and slaughtered. Uh, and Saul continued to fear David more and more because the Lord was with David. We see three times in the, the rest of this chapter that the Lord was with David in verses 12 and 14 and 28, over and over again. God was with David, and Saul didn't seem to like that. Saul, again, grew in his jealousy over David because David was blessed, and Saul wasn't. Well, jumping forward to chapter 19, as we 
pick up this relationship between David and Jonathan, we see in, uh, I'll go ahead and read 19, 1 through 3. It says, Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all of his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. And if I find out anything, then I will tell you. And so we see here that Jonathan's loyalty has begun to, to shift from his dad to David. He's now, he's got David's back and he's telling him that. In verse 1 he says that, it says that he greatly delighted in David. Verse 3, he said, you know what, I'm going to tell you. He's setting up this whole situation. He told David, I'll tell you if my dad says anything, if he's coming after you, if he wants to hurt you. So he's got David's back for sure. Um, again, a, there's a friend who sticks closer to a brother and Jonathan fits that profile perfectly. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 4. It says, Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. Notice that slight rebuke. He's calling sin, sin. He's calling his father to righteousness. Verse 5, he says, For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. And so, uh, again, we see that Jonathan is willing to, to call out sin. He's wanting his dad to do what's right. He's standing up for, Jonathan, or for David, which is no small thing. Remember, he's standing up not just to his dad, but to the king and rebuking him, telling him that he needs to live righteously. And in verse 6, Saul relents. He repents and he says, you know what? You're right. I'm going to stay away from David. He shall not be put to death so long as the Lord lives. And from here, as we learned last week, Pastor Jeremy was preaching about how um, Michael goes and continues to help David escape, and we see more attempts being made on David's life. But let's once again fast forward to uh, chapter 20 and pick up again the narrative between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20 as we see Jonathan's loyalty being put to the test. He's already proclaimed his loyalty for David. He's sworn that he will be loyal to him, and we'll see more of that here in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father, that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well, that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And so several times now we've seen, Sonathan, 
we've seen Saul come after David. Uh, he's taken a very direct approach, right? A couple times now, he's hurled the spear at him, trying to kill him with his spear. He's taken a, an indirect approach by approaching Jonathan and, and others, saying, you, you guys need to go and, and kill David. He's trying to hire some hitmen to go and take out David, his sworn enemy. Uh, he tries himself again, as we noticed last week, and he was stopped from doing so by the Holy Spirit. He ended up prophesying instead of killing David like he had sought to, to do. And David knows that he's not going to stop, that Saul has murder in his heart, that he wants David gone. And he's going and he's presenting this to Jonathan. Remember the last thing that Jonathan had heard back in verse 6 of chapter 19 was that uh, Saul had sworn by the very existence of God that David would live, that he's not going to go after David. And so now Jonathan is kind of wondering, okay, well, what, what's going on here? Is, is my dad telling the truth or is my, my best friend David telling him the truth? He's finding himself kind of in the middle here, wondering what it is that he should do. Well, we see a, an amazing attitude from Jonathan in verse 4. It says, Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And so Jonathan here is beginning to acknowledge his ignorance. I think ignorance has negative connotations. We don't want to be called ignorant. Uh, that's not a, a title that we seek to have attached to ourselves. But there can be some good qualities, some good aspects to ignorance. Now, there's a, a difference between willful, willful ignorance, just sticking your head in the sand and refusing to, to listen to what people tell you, and to this attitude of uh, acknowledging our, our inabilities, our blind spots that we might have, manufactured blind spots or otherwise. And Jonathan was definitely facing some manufactured blind spots. His dad was kind of pulling strings. He was lying to him. He was hiding stuff from him. He was trying to manipulate the situation. And yet Jonathan was, he was wise enough to realize that he had these blind spots, that he had some ignorance, that there were some things that he didn't know, that he didn't know everything. That takes some humility. Uh, we, we can't allow ourselves to let our emotions, our, our hopes get in the way of what we accept as reality. We have preferences, things that we, we hope are true, and yet sometimes we allow those to cloud our perception of reality. And, and I get this. I, I understand this. We, we want those that we love to be right. And we, I think oftentimes we'll give them the benefit of the doubt more often than we should. Um, especially when it's our, our parents. And I think, for instance, we're, we're really quick oftentimes to accept when our, our parents tell us, this is the, the best car insurance company, right? Uh, you guys know that's how most people end up with their, their car insurance company because that's what their parents had. Or when our parents tell us, well, this is the, the best make of truck. You should drive this type of truck rather than this type of truck. Or... Um, this is the, again, the, the sports team that we're going to root for in this family because that's, that's how we, we roll in this family. Um, it's, all of those things are, are really inconsequential. And uh, I think we, we realize that, that those are inconsequential things. We realize that at the end of the day, dad's not going to write you out of the will because you drive a Dodge rather than a Ford, right? At least, hopefully, he's not going to do that. 
However, there are things that are much more important than these just minute details. It is of eternal consequence. If we take and apply this same sort of loyalty to spiritual realities, if we just take for granted and believe whatever somebody tells us is true about God or true about his word rather than putting it to the test. And I know that oftentimes we do this subconsciously without even really thinking about it, but I've had several people tell me straight up that if, if what you're saying to me is, is true, if you're telling me that Jesus is God and that God is holy, that we've sinned against this holy God, and that we have to pay a price for that sin, if we're going to be held accountable for that, then that means that my, my grandma is in hell. That means that my mom or dad or my son or daughter or fill in the blank, that person's in hell if what you're telling me is true. And I refuse to believe that. And again, I, I, I get that and I understand that to some level uh, because hell is no, no insignificant doctrine. It, it's a hard truth to, to swallow that our loved ones might be in hell because of what they believed. That doesn't change truth. We shouldn't allow our emotions to... Uh, to shade our understanding of reality. And it can be a temptation for us to do that. Um, Let's read Titus 3 together. Titus 3, verses 3 through 6. Possibly. Do we have it in there? I did not put that in there. All right. Let's do it the old-fashioned way. Let's turn in our Bibles to Titus 3, 3 through 6. First and second, Timothy, Titus. And it says here, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. That's where we were. That's our our natural state before coming in Christ. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we ought not to be deceived as we are in our flesh, as we once were. But we need to, uh, again, separate our, our emotions, separate our, our fallen heart, which is constantly lying to us, constantly, constantly trying to deceive us from reality. Just as, as Jonathan did, again, he didn't allow his understanding of reality to be blinded by his fallen heart. And I think that's uh, commendable for sure. All right, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll pick up again in verse 4. I'm going to read a longer section here from verse 4 down through 17. It says, Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down and eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says, it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he says, very, if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into the covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? 
Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? And then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go out into the field. So both men went out in, into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not take if I do not make it known to you and send you away, and you may go in safety, and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth." So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And so we see here several times throughout this section that Jonathan makes an appeal to the, the covenant that he made to God beforehand. That's what he did all the way up in verse 18. He's appealing to this covenant they had made previously. Uh, Jonathan cited the Lord, the God of Israel, as a witness before them in verse 12. Again, this common bond that they have. In verses 16 and 17, he speaks again of a covenant of a vow because they have this common bond in the Lord. And so they're able to look and say, we made this covenant, we made this promise, this vow before God himself. And Jonathan here was committed to, to get to the bottom of this issue, to figure out whether or not Saul was truly after David's life, or if maybe David was somehow misunderstanding that spear flying by the side of his head. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how I could misunderstand that, but Jonathan is trying to, to figure out what is the truth, and what is he going to do about this truth. And so uh, they come up with this plan, and um, they're, they're setting out to to figure out the, the heart and the intent that Saul had before him. Uh, I want to read to you this quote from Cicero, a Roman philosopher. He said, speaking about friends, he said, the shift of fortune tests the reliability of friends. Friends are proven by adversity. And we definitely see a, a lot of adversity that David is facing, David is coming up against. And Jonathan is right there. He's willing to go through these extreme measures to help figure out what is going on, what is the intent that Saul has. And he is still holding out hope that his dad isn't wanting to kill his best friend, but he's willing to follow the evidence wherever it might lead. And again, we have to consider the, the implications of this. Again, Jonathan's not just uh, talking back to, to daddy, right? He's talking back to the king and he's questioning the king and putting himself in a, a pretty dicey situation where he might actually lose his life himself. Uh, when it says at the end of verse 17, again, that he loved him with his own life. This isn't just some uh, sweet, pithy statement. This isn't just a, a lyric from a song, but Jonathan was willing to die for David. That's why he says back in verse 14 of chapter 20, if I'm still alive, 
because he realized there's a, a great possibility he might not be alive to return to David and to tell David that his life is in trouble. So he says, yeah, if I'm alive, um, then I'll show you this, this loving kindness. And he's actually imploring David to show him loving kindness. Will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? Because not only was he in a, a threatening situation from his dad and calling out his dad, but if David really were to rise to the throne, then he could be in threat from David. And so he's appealing to David, don't do as the, the common practice calls for to rid the old king of all of his family members, but show me this, this loving kindness. That's the great Hebrew word hesed, right? It's not just talking about uh, some little uh, insignificant love. It's not just love, but it's a, a loyal love. It's not just favor, but it's devotion. Not just kindness, but it's dependable kindness. He's calling on David to show him this great, dependable, loyal, loving kindness in his victory and his success that the Lord's going to give him, that he would uh, withhold the the death of him and, and his family. And we'll see later that David comes through on that vow. Um, we see in verses 15 and 16, he's speaking of the, the enemies. And remember, keep in mind that Saul is his enemy that he's talking about. And so when Saul, Solomon is, not Solomon, when Jonathan is talking to David, and he says that not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, He's talking about his own dad. When, when my God uh, takes my dad out of your way, remember me. He says the same thing in verse 16. May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. That's a, a pretty strong prayer to pray that the Lord would take your dad out of the way so that your friend can rise to the throne. But again, Jonathan was faithful to the Lord. He wanted what the Lord wanted. All right, let's continue to read a little bit more. I'm going to pick up again in 1 Samuel 20, verse 18. It says, Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because, of your, because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, and there is safety for you, and no harm, as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So Jonathan hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down for food. The king sat down on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, David did not speak anything that day, for he thought, It is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the mill, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. 
So again, they've uh, established a plan. They are, Jonathan has sought to execute, execute this plan in order to figure out what Saul's intentions are. And now you might notice that he's not exactly honest in the way that he's going about this plan. He's straight up lying about where David's at, right? And there are different opinions, even within the Christian community, about whether or not this was right or wrong. Let me just remind you that all, not all narrative is normative. That is that not everything that the Bible says is being commended. God isn't giving his stamp of approval on this. He's not saying that this is okay. This is just a, a record of what took place. This is uh, descriptive. It is not prescriptive. Uh, notice down also in verse 27 that Saul is referring to David as the son of Jesse. We should understand that as being derisive. He's not, that's not a, a favorable way to mention his son-in-law. He doesn't say to Jonathan, hey, wh where's your best friend at? Hey, where's my son-in-law? Where's that amazing guy who, who slaughtered Goliath? He doesn't say, where's your brother-in-law at? Where, where's my beloved David? No, he says, the, the son of Jesse. Where's this guy at? Uh, it's a, a derisive way to speak about David. And the, the question of morality aside, whether or not this was the, the proper way to uh, scheme against Saul, this was, in the end, uh, this scheme was effective in revealing Saul's motives and his heart and what he wanted to do with David. We'll see in verse 30, uh, Saul's burning anger. It says, that Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? He doesn't know the Bible had your mama jokes, huh? That's pretty harsh. Uh, he's really ripping into Jonathan's mom there. He's not really holding back. Uh, He's saying, essentially, I'm ashamed that you were ever even born. And let me just read for you what F.B. Meyer says about this. I like the way he puts it. He says, The very fountains of a father's love and pride dry up before the volcanic fires of jealousy and become the cause of even deeper and wider contortions. This new vent of the volcano, which raged within Saul's heart, revealed itself as he abused Jonathan with the vilest epithets that an eastern man can use. Remember, this is his son, and he's not speaking very kindly to him at all. It says that his anger was burning against Jonathan now. Not only was he angry at David, he's angry at Jonathan. In verse 31, it says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. And so Saul is reminding Jonathan of what's at stake. You're going to lose your kingdom because this guy, your, your friend David, is going to overshadow you, and, and it's going to be costly. And this reveals not only what's at stake, but part of the motivation of Saul's heart, what is driving this hatred for David, and now it's rubbing off on Jonathan. Let's read a couple more verses in verse 32. It says, But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Same question he had before. Verse 33, Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. 
Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. So, now wait, this is a little bit inconsistent, isn't it, with what he said before? Because in verse 31, he says, David has to be out of the way so that you can rule and reign. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to, to reign. And now he's throwing spears at his own son, trying to kill his own son. He, again, wasn't just uh, being lively. He wasn't just joking around with them. It says that he intended to, to strike him down. His goal was to kill him. Uh, thank God that God in his providence didn't give Saul great aim with a spear, right? Otherwise, uh, these stories would be quite different. But he seeks to kill Jonathan. And I think his, his previous story in verse 31 saying, well, I want you to reign. That's being shown to now just be a fraud. That's just a, a cover story. That's just a front for what he's really wanting. Uh, he's trying to justify his anger, trying to act as if his, his purposes are, are righteous. And James says that the, the anger of man doesn't bring about the, the righteousness of God. Right before that, let's look together at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This gives us insight into not only Saul's wicked heart, but our wicked hearts. It says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, what lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is the, the progression of sin in our hearts. It starts off as, as lust, as something that we want, and it grows and develops and results in death. Uh, James later on in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he goes on, he's speaking about, again, where this, this anger comes from. Can we get James 4, 1 up on the screen? James 4, 1 says, What is a source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Where, where do these fighting desires come from? Uh, I think throwing spears at people, trying to kill people, definitely qualifies as quarrels and conflicts. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And again, this is all starting with lust. These verses uh, play themselves out in a very literal sense in Saul's life. He is lusting after power. I think he's lusting after God's favor, and he has murder on his heart because his lusts, his desires aren't being fulfilled. The, the desires, the idols of his heart aren't being satisfied. Back in First uh, Samuel 20, verse 30, when it was talking about Saul being angry with Jonathan, it said that Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. In the ESV, the word there for burned is kindled. It was kindled against Jonathan. Or the NIV, it says it, it flared up against Jonathan. So that anger, it was already there. It was already uh, present in his heart. It was just manifesting itself. And it wasn't just that Saul was first angry with David, and then that transferred to Jonathan. It didn't even start with, with David or with, with Jonathan. I think that Saul was ultimately angry with God because God was showing his favor to David rather than to Saul and to Jonathan. Just like Jerry read for us at the beginning in uh, 1313, God had told him, I'm, I'm taking your kingdom away from you. I'm going to give this kingdom to a man who's after my own heart. God had moved on from Saul and moved on to David. And 
Now, Saul is just making excuses, right? He's just lying and covering up his own sinful heart. He's making excuses for his own anger. We do this too, right? Have you ever told somebody, man, you, you make me so angry? That's not true. Not according to James 4, right? It's these, uh, these conflicts and quarrels, they arise because of our own lusts and our passions that aren't being satisfied. And we need to uh, recognize that and, and put it to rest. We need to own it and fix it. So Saul resented God's favor being poured out on David, whereas Jonathan, rather than resenting it, he rejoiced in the fact that God was pouring out his favor on David. That's why he had such a a great relationship with David, because he rejoiced in what God was doing in him and through him, rather than resenting it as his father had done. And also in addition to Saul's own sinful heart, his own passions and desires, we can't neglect to recognize the fact that he was also being influenced by this evil spirit as well. Remember, this evil spirit that, yes, God had sent upon him, but this evil spirit who was uh, seeking to do the work of his father, seeking to stop Saul, uh, rather, to, to stop David from uh, being successful in what God had called him to do. This evil spirit who wants nothing more than for the Messiah, the descendant of Abraham, the son of Jesse, the the son of David, to fail in his mission from saving the world from their sins. We are in a a spiritual battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities and forces of this dark world. And we have to recognize that when we have these same selfish, sinful desires, there's a, a spiritual war at play as well. Well, let's jump down to the the end of the chapter in verses 41 and 42. Uh, we, we're going to skip over what Jonathan actually, he keeps his fulfillment. He fulfills and keeps his uh, promise to David to go back and to tell him what's happening. And he goes back and they do the whole arrow shooting thing like they had planned. And then in verse 41, it says that when the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and went on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And so Jonathan was uh, faithful to keep his covenant that he had made with David. He went back and he he told David, dude, you're in trouble. You need to be on the run. You need to get out of here because, yeah, my, my dad has it out for you. He threw a spear at me. You need to be on the run. And David, uh, we, we don't see it in this passage, but he was faithful to his covenant, his commitment to Jonathan as well. And he'll go on to protect his son in the future, Mephibosheth, um, and, and care for him and provide uh, housing and, and cover for him as well. And I want to actually read for us the, the eulogy that David gives for Jonathan, not just Jonathan, but Jonathan and Saul in Second Samuel chapter 1. Uh, spoiler alert, Jonathan goes on to die, as does Saul. And David is there to write their, their eulogy after their death. In verse 17, it says that David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, Not only that, it says that he told them to teach this to the sons of Judah, to sing with the bow. 
in jumping forward to verse 23, it's up on the screen. It says that Saul and Jonathan, this is part of his song for Saul and Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Again, this is uh, an, example, an example of a, a great and beautiful friendship in the Bible, an example of Jonathan's commitment to David and David's commitment to Jonathan and their uh, keeping of their, their covenants. But even all of this, we have to realize that God is orchestrating these things together so that he might show himself to be faithful, so that he might keep his commitment to establish David as king. He had promised him before that you're going to be king over all of Israel, um, that your throne will be established forever. And God is going to continue to show his loving kindness for his chosen people, Israel. He's going to raise up the, the seed of the woman so that he could crush the head of the snake. He is going to raise up Jesus, the son of David, so that he can save his people from their sins. All this is just uh, a microcosm of what God is doing in his bigger picture of uh, saving the world through the, the son of David. Uh, this is all leading to the cross. This is all leading to Christ and what he has accomplished there because God is faithful to keep his covenants even as David and Jonathan were faithful. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness, that you are a, a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever that you have said it and you will accomplish it, that we can, we can take your word to the bank. We can know that your word is truth. God, we thank you for the fact that you have shown favor to us, that you have drawn us to yourself and pray that you would do that for, for any who might not be in you, that we would be made right by, uh, by your perfect sacrifice, that we might be found in you, complete, lacking nothing, God, we thank you for salvation. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your church. And pray that you would um, that you would be pleased with our our worship of you today. Pray this in your name. Amen.